Before Sarah discovered ChumbaCasino.com, she enjoyed chamomile tea. Come on, big jackpot. And being in PJs by six. Let's go. The new fun Sarah often thinks about the old boring Sarah. Yes. And wonders if that Sarah ever really existed. Chumba Casino has over a hundred casino style games. So join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. We were created by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. She actually called me and said, hey, I uh, just saw a news flash come across the, you know, my phone, and it says that a team um, up near the Mali border was attacked and a few Americans were killed. And I instantly just said, that was Brian's team. That's Brian. Brian's dead. And I tried to calm down and like, okay, you're right, because I didn't want to freak her out. And so I started making phone calls, but with each phone call, it became more obvious. Um, there was roughly 50 insurgents, right? We were told it started with there were 50. Then it was there were 80. Later, I would read in the redacted report, uh, at points it would say that they were going to exploit the campsite. At other points, it said they were on a capture-detain mission. The wording kept changing on what their mission was up there. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast where relevancy is irrelevant and we don't give a shit about your feelings. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. She is the gold star widow of Special Forces Green Beret, Brian Black. She's the author of the book, Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. She actually broke the trim around the door from dragging the huge set of lady balls that she has through the door. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Michelle Black. (laughs) Hi, thank you for having me on today. Yeah, is that the the most professional intro you've had thus far on the book tour? That's good. Absolutely. I'll I'll take the, uh, the Dundee for that. Uh, one thing I do want to say, uh, welcome to the new studio. We, uh, the last episode, we were in the new studio. This is uh, more of the finished product. We may make a couple of changes, but I uh, got a new desk and, and kind of all new, new background and stuff. So, uh, so this is it. So you're, you're kind of the first guest of the new, new finished studio that we uh, moved over the last couple of months. Sorry, I've been taking a break getting all of this ready, uh, but now we're back. Uh, we've got a number of of episodes planned and uh, looking forward to, to getting back in the swing of things. So thank you for coming. I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about your book. I read the book over the last few days and uh, it's, it's both uh, frustrating and, and also uh, encouraging in, in some ways too to, uh, to see kind of the community of support that you got from, from the lower echelons of, of the people that were involved. Uh, 
super frustrating on the higher echelon stuff, which we'll get into. But, uh, you know, I think for somebody like you to, to put together a book like this and tell your story and go through all of the things that you went through and, and still, despite all that, put this book together uh, says a lot about your character. And, and I appreciate you doing it and, and coming to share it with us. Thank you. I'm, I mean, I appreciate you having me and considering everything that was done um, just for the men who it happened to, I felt like I had no other option. Yeah. I had to do this yeah. for them. And also, you know, granted also for the families and for myself, but yeah. the men were a huge part of this yeah. because I think of all the men who have gone through something like this and no one has ever done anything. And it's only us family members who can stand up and do what I did. Yeah. Nobody else can do that for them. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, I, I applaud and... Uh and respect that you did that. It's, uh, it's not an easy task, no doubt. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese, and uh, it's just all around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American made, uh, all American sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house. And they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now. And I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd also like to talk about uh, my brand of dog food that just came out. There's uh, food, treats, uh, a line of supplements. The supplements are hip and joint, digestive, skin and coat. Uh, the treats, there's salmon bites, beef bites, turkey bites, uh, salmon skins. And then the food, we've got a, uh, a chicken and sweet potato formula as well as a salmon and herring meal formula. All of these products I, I've come out with uh, in the last six months after years of of trying to find uh, kind of the right blend and, and be uncompromising in the product quality of what I want uh, and was uh, fortunate enough to work with a manufacturer that made everything exactly how I wanted it, uh, tested it out and got it dialed into exactly how I want it. And now we've brought it to market and, uh, and it's available to you guys. So MikeRitlandCo.com, it's the Fueled by Team Dog line of, of food treats and supplements. I encourage you to either check it out or choke yourself. What was your favorite cereal growing up? <laughs> we weren't allowed to Not have allowed to like answer. junk cereals. So typically it was Honey Nut Cheerios because that was the only other option besides regular Cheerios. Yeah. But the minute my mom would leave, my dad would let us go out and buy like Fruit Loops and whatever. Yeah. And then it was too overwhelming because yeah. I, I couldn't choose. So, you know. I, so I, with mom, it's grape nuts. With dad, he's kicking the lucky charms, huh? Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so, sounds a lot like my house. Uh, what's the funniest thing any of your kids have ever done? Oh, gosh. There's a lot. Um one time we got a letter back from school. At the end of the school year, we got all of the um, art back at the end of the year. And this was Brian's favorite thing. And I found it recently. My oldest son, who's on the spectrum, had drawn a picture of Freddie Fazbear. And one of the arms had, in it was huge compared to the other one. And he had wrote, what the? And then he'd censored the F word. <laughs> 
And <laughs> we had never received a call. So I'm going through his artwork at the end of the year, and it's just like, well, I guess at least he censored it, you know. And how, what grade is but, he at this uh, point? Or I think seventh. seventh. No, no, no. He was seven, so probably second grade. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So. It's pretty funny. Uh, kids do some of the funniest and, and frust- most frustrating things. That, uh, they're like little drunk comedians running around half the time. I love it. Uh, what's your favorite cheat meal? Cheat meal? Oh, gosh. Probably either fish and chips or ribs. Like and the traditional English fish and chips type? No, just what we get here in the States. Oh, okay. like, like fish and, yeah. yeah. And, or um, just steak and potatoes or ribs. Uh, is there a, a place rib-wise that uh, you prefer? I think I've moved so much that it's just whatever sounds good that day, smells good. That's is there a place that you've lived that has the best barbecue? I mean, you're in North Carolina, right? I'm I'm in Washington now. In North Carolina, oh gosh, there were a few places, but honestly, Brian made the most insane barbecue that I usually would wait till he would get home. He had a Weber Bullet, and he would. He would spend days just yeah. smoking, I mean, everything from That's pork awesome. shoulder to, I mean, he would even make these smoked dips that were just insane. Really? Yeah, yeah. Awesome. so um, usually I'd wait until he was home, and then yeah. I'd, I'd yeah. do it that way. Put him to work. Yeah. <laughs> uh, have you ever been arrested? No. Have you almost ever been arrested? No, I'm, I'm pretty straight Have you ever been in big trouble of any kind? Uh, not that I can think of, no. You got a clean, clean record, huh? I do, yeah. What, uh, what is your morning routine? Ah, uh, usually, you know, of course it's coffee. Um, get up coffee. If the, if it's summer, kids are sleeping in, so I'm not up extra early getting them up and getting them out the door. Um, then what I try and do is uh, I try and contact family members, which I know is, I think because I've, I've had so much loss in my life, what I do is I make my coffee and then I call my mom, who's a widow, and she misses my dad pretty bad, so I'll call her. Um, I'll call my cousin David, who recently lost his wife, and he's a little younger than me, so I'll talk to him. I'll call my grandparents because they're still alive, and I grew up snowboarding with my grandpa, so we'll talk skiing and snowboarding, oh, cool. yeah. and, you know, he's awesome. He still goes yeah. up to the mountain for a run or two a day. That's amazing. Um, so I try and call all the people who, you know, I'm just grateful to still have, yeah. and, um... Yeah, so that's what I would do. And, and then I go about, you know, the normal stuff, laundry dishes. Are, are these work. calls typically um, just kind of shooting the breeze chit-chat, or, or is it more of a deep connecting type of call? It depends on the day. With my cousin right now, it's a lot of helping helping him deal with what I was dealing with just a few years ago. Yeah. And with my mom, it just it also depends on where we're both at that day. Um, because some days we're going through similar stuff, or I'm going through something she went through, you know, because my dad died about 10 years ago, or she's going through something again that we both have been through, and and it's just nice to have someone who can speak on that level, Yeah, you know. Uh, That's for sure important. I know a lot of times, most times, most people bottle that stuff up, and then it causes problems uh, elsewhere, so that's that's neat to hear. Uh, All right, so growing up, um, you grew up uh, in the Mammoth, Mammoth, California area, is that right? Yeah, I actually, I was born in Mammoth, lived there till I was about eight, and then we moved to Tehachapi, California, which is out near Bakersfield, the high desert, um, and we grew up out on 20 acres there until I was uh, um, 
yeah, until I left home, and then I moved back to Mammoth yeah. for a while after college. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, in terms of growing up, did you have siblings and, and uh, like a big family, or what, what was that like? Yeah, I had a huge family. Um, there were four siblings, so I had an older brother, a younger sister, and a younger brother. And I have a huge extended family. So when actually when I was born in Mammoth, there was this little town or a little like town just outside of Mammoth called Crowley Lake. And there was one road and we all lived along that road. I have 26 cousins. So I was born across the street from my cousins. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so I um, was born across the street from my cousin Gwen and we were the same age so we thought we were just twins separated because she has five brothers so we were sure her mom couldn't have daughters so we thought we were twins and we were just separated so we were best friends we still are I mean after Brian died she came and slept next to my bed for um, almost a month she lost her job over it but um, yeah she's just we've been inseparable since we were that age so um, everyone lived on that street, and then when we moved to Tatchby, slowly all the family members moved there. Um, and so, yeah, everybody lives there now except for a few of us. And, um, I mean, it was growing up, it was riding bikes from house to yeah. house during the summer and yeah. causing all sorts of trouble. I guess I caused trouble as a group, yeah. <laughs> not as an individual. So you, you were smart about it. You waited until other people would take the rap. Right, I'll be like, I'll be yeah. at the back, so I've got yeah. the quickest escape route. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. It sound, I mean, it sounds like such a good way to grow up. That's neat uh, to have a huge, huge family component that way. Um, one of the things I found interesting is that you and Brian met before uh, he went into the service or you know, b- before he kind of became a Green Beret, and which... In, in most instances, it's kind of the other way around. You know, most people, most guests that I have on, you know, they met their wives after they'd been in for, you know, a little while or whatever. Uh, I'd love to hear about kind of how you guys met and, and what it was like before before all that happened. Yeah, it's funny because I had, um, I'd finished college and I thought, you know, I just want to take some time off. I love skiing. I, <laughs> I had actually... I was working a nine-to-five, and I'd gotten offered a five-year career in my, in my field after I graduated, and I was like, I can't sign up for five years. And when winter break hit and everyone at my job was taking that week off, um, I realized I'm only 20, I think I was 22 at the time. I don't want to do this. So I literally called and quit. Then I called, um, my grandparents were heading up to Mammoth, so I packed my board bag with a couple pairs of clothes and some ski gear, and I caught a ride with them. And when I got up there, I went straight to the mountain, applied for a job as an instructor, and then I realized I didn't have anywhere to live, so I walked back into town, and my uncle lived in town, so I thought, well, I'll go to his house and see if I can stay there, but he wasn't home, so I fell asleep on the dryer outside (laughs) the apartments. And um, his girlfriend was coming over because she heard that I was in town, and she found me asleep on the dryer and took me home with her and let me live with her for a little bit. And then I moved in with a bunch of my girlfriends from church that I met. Um, I'd known them in high school and growing up a little bit, and so one of them was like, yeah, I'm buying this house. You want to move in? I was like, absolutely. So I moved in there and then uh, lived with like, you know, five to ten girls, depending on the time of year, for a few years. But yeah, I was at church one night, and Brian walks in, you know, and everybody's saggy pants, super cool, fur-lined jackets. And Brian's, you know, crew neck looking sweater, um, muscle bound. I mean, he looked like a fighter. He looked like he should have two black eyes. He had been, 
you know, he had done MMA, cage fighting, wrestling. I didn't even know what cage fighting was. He told me that, and I thought it was just maybe something he did in a club in a cage above. <laughs> and I thought, that's embarrassing. Why would you tell a girl that? Yeah. But, um, yeah, so he just kept hanging around. He was really quiet, and I thought he looked big and, and dumb. And so I just thought, this is this big, dumb, quiet guy following me around all the time. But whatever, he's nice enough. Um, Why was he there in the area? Did he just move there? He had just graduated college, um, and he uh, had skied there with his uncle as a kid. And so he moved from Washington. He'd gone to Central, Central, I guess, Washington State. I don't know, some college in Central Washington. Um, And he had moved down to Mammoth just to ski, just to get away and ski, I guess. That's cool. So, yeah, he walked in the door, and it was just, he was a total misfit. And um, so I just talked to him a little bit and thought, this guy's, you know, odd, but he's really nice, you know. Um, And he played dumb. He always played really dumb because he knew he looked (laughs) dumb. I found out uh, one night we were sitting there. He came over to hang out with me and my roommates and uh, because – all the guys from church would come over, so he just kind of came over with them. And they were all watching TV, and he goes, well, I want to learn to crochet because I made crochet hats for all these um, high-end shops in the village. And I was like, okay, I guess I'll take a night off and teach him, you know, whatever. And he literally sat there, and he's, you know, crocheting, and he, and he learned. But it's um, pretty smooth, i got to tell you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he had, like, these big awkward fingers yeah. you know it was, yeah it was definitely but what was nice is I started to real like learn things about him and it turned out he had graduated he, I knew he was young he had graduated from college at 20 because he had done these um, college courses alongside high school courses and had finished his AA the same year he finished high school wow. and then went to college for two years and then managed to um get his four-year degree in that time. And so when I met him, he was four years younger than me. Oh, what, he still was, you know. Yeah, what, uh, what <laughs> did he major in? Uh, business. From yeah. what, what college? Uh, Central Washington State University, oh, okay. I believe. Um, yeah, and then he, uh, that night, so he's telling me this, and then he tells me, oh, and I've always played chess, and he just put little things out. And yeah. I would find out later from his mom, he had won second at nationals wow. um, at, in chess, uh, when he was 11 and he had competed like large scale since he was a young kid and would beat grown men all the time. <laughs> and That's I mean, crazy. he was just, he was really smart. No, I refused to play anything that I knew from the get <laughs> that I wouldn't like, if I knew from the start that I couldn't beat him, there was no way I was yeah. going to play him. Did he, so. uh, did he ever try to teach the boys chess? Uh, yeah, yeah, I've got pictures of him That's teaching cool. them. That's yeah. Awesome. And they still, they, they, haven't done a ton of it, but when they play, they get so intense. One guy always ends up getting mad at the end and Flipping crying and angry. Yeah. And yeah, yeah that's so awesome. yeah. So who who asked who out? I guess like when did it go from just kind of hanging out to more than that? And then how did that happen? Well, we were outside church one night actually, and he had just randomly called me his girlfriend, and I was <laughs> pissed. Because I never, I almost never dated anyone. I hated being anyone's girlfriend. I was like, I don't want anyone thinking they get to tell me what to do or think they own me. Like, I do my own thing, and I don't want that getting, you know. um, Yeah, controlled by anyone. So when he called me his girlfriend, I was like, oh, no, I'm not your girlfriend, and I don't know why you think that I am. (laughs) 
<laughs> and what was funny is, yeah, he didn't care at all. Yeah. He was just like, so no, you're my girlfriend. And I'm like, no, I'm not your girlfriend. Yeah. And we're like arguing about it. And it turns into this him being super logical and laying out all the reasons why. <laughs> and me just getting more frustrated because he's not hearing me. He's just arguing his case. Was he right, though? He was absolutely yeah. right. By the end, I was like, you know, you're right. We've been hanging out all this time. And, I, you know, if, if we were to break up or whatever, yeah. or quit hanging out, like I definitely would upset about it and yeah. I would want him to stay you know and he's That's a good funny. guy and he's not going to try and control me or whatever so I was like all right fine yeah. I'm your girlfriend and he's like perfect because I've been telling everyone that we're dating and I was like okay now here's the absolute <laughs> final line is we were not dating until tonight yeah. so you need to correct everybody on that because yeah. if I didn't know then we weren't dating yeah you know that's a trip so how uh, how long did you guys date before he uh, he proposed um well, after that point, only a couple months. Yeah, wow. <clears throat> yeah. How did he propose? He put a ring in the bottom of a box of yarn. <laughs> and so I had to dig through all this yarn, and I'm like, wow, he really, I mean, it was a big box of yarn, and he's just going, well, just go through all of it. I want you to see all the dips. So I'm like, I took my time going yeah. through it, and he must have been getting pretty frustrated. Yeah. Did you have an idea that that was a good A little bit, Yeah. We had talked about getting engaged um, on one of our hikes um, that summer. So actually, it was right after we had discussed um, whether or not we were dating. Then we were out on this long hike, and he pretty much was like, yeah, I had a dream that, um, you know, you had, it was something along the lines of you had asked me, uh, or I asked you to marry, to marry me, and you said, what took you so long? And I was like, well, then why don't you just propose already? And we're kind of joking, but then we're, we're still talking about it. And by yeah. the end of that trip, it was like, we just knew, like, we're going to end up getting married. Um, so, and he had talked to my dad about um, proposing. And, yeah, so it was That's pretty awesome. sad. Um, all right, so from, from that point, uh, how much time took place between when you guys uh, got engaged slash got married until he decided... I want to. I want to join uh, the army, and, and kind of what drove that? Well, um, it was actually quite a bit of time. He let's see, we got married in two thousand five in the summer, and it was spring of two thousand nine. I want to say when he um, we were obviously we'd had kids. We were struggling with all sorts of issues, and his parents um we'd gone to stay with them the the financial crisis of 2008 had happened and brian for a living had been playing online poker really yeah for a living yeah oh, shit. so yeah he uh, he had wanted to get into stocks and stock trading day trading and he had talked to somebody who done who did it professionally and they had recommended that he play poker for a living for a little while just to get the hang of um how to deal with risk hmm. and properly assessing risk. Interesting. Yeah, so he had started playing it and then ended up making so much money that we were doing pretty well. He was able to support us off of it. But At the risk of being super nosy, I mean, what, what kind of income is, is he making off of that? Well, we have one kid that we called our $40,000 baby, and we paid for him in cash. Jeez. So, <laughs> so quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, and that's then we wild. bought our car outright and, yeah. you know, so, several other things. Yeah, that's a trip. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm but, make a note. I need to get into online poetry. Well, that was before the um, when um, the Obama administration came in. They began to tamp down on um, just all the laws. They began to tighten all the laws and restrict rules on on internet gaming, and mainly they focused in on the banking. And so the banking became. Um, very difficult because you had to put your money in offshore accounts and transfer it into, I mean, it just became an absolute mess because then you're having to put your money into risky accounts. So good old classic and Uncle Sam doesn't like uh, his citizens making money without getting right. a piece of it. Which was insane because when you looked at the tax on it, they were making a lot of money on yeah. the taxes he was paying. That's crazy. But um, so... When that happened in 2008, we were struggling because then he's like, okay, I'm going to go get a job. And then, you know, you put professional poker player. No one's going to hire you. And he hadn't worked with his business degree yet. And then um, the economic, you know, decline, uh, whatever, the the economy was kind of in a free fall at that point. And so getting a job was difficult enough. But, I mean, he couldn't even get, like, warehouses to hire him because it was just everybody was trying to get jobs, and and there just weren't enough jobs. So um, one day he came home, and he's just like, I can't, like, do this anymore. We're living with my parents just to make ends meet, and, you know, this is miserable. And I could see it was making him miserable, and I thought, shoot, if he's miserable, then we're all going to be miserable. So I was like, well, what, if you could do anything, what would you want to do? And he says, well, I've always wanted to be a Green Beret or a Navy SEAL. Can I, you know, go and just enlist? And I'm like, yeah, do it. Had he talked about that at all before then? Like, did you know that? He, I knew that he'd always wanted to be, um, like, growing up. Yeah. We hadn't talked about it as an adult, whether or not that was something he still wanted. Yeah. Um, but it was funny, anybody who met him, especially men, would be like, oh, you'll be one of those super secret guys yeah. one day, you know, super secret squirrel or whatever. So <laughs> I was like, whatever, he's, he's a pretty natural for it. Like, if that's what he wants to do and that's what's going to make him happy, then we're all going to be a lot happier. Because, yeah. you know, there's nothing like a guy coming home happy. Yeah. You know, he's going to be playing with kids, whatever. Um, you know, you got him there and he's depressed, then, you know, everyone's going to be miserable. So I was like, just... Go do that if that's going to make you happy. So he left. That was 2009. And 2010, yeah, we all left and went to Colorado. So how old was he at this point? Gosh, he was, I want to say he was 27 or 28. Yeah, Which, you know, is is still very young, obviously. But for that line of work is not old, but it's for sure older. You know, it's... Uh, usually early early twenties. Uh, you know, was there any any element of that to, uh, to him that he talked about at all in terms of feeling like he was one of the older guys, or, or that, that? Oh yeah, he he was. Um, he liked it because he was his life was more together. Yeah. Um, I think mentally, emotionally, he could handle a lot more. Mm-hmm. So, like, if when he said, "Okay, I'm going to go to SFAS, which is Special Forces Training School," or uh, uh, tryouts for special forces for the Q course. Um, he had no doubt that he would make it, and I had no doubt. You know, just because the mentality, the maturity, you know, all of that. He granted he was older than everybody else, but twenty-seven. You know, your body's still yeah. plenty capable. So yeah. it wasn't a physical issue. It was just mentally and emotionally. And he, and because at home. We were so stable. He felt really comfortable just leaving because he knew nothing would ever, like, get rocked at home. Yeah. So he knew he'd come home to the same situation he left. He would never come home to any surprises. Yeah. And how, so, old, how old were the boys at that point? 
Um, Isaac was just about, I want to say, one when Brian joined, and Zeke was two or three. They're about a year and a half apart. Yeah, so that's all they knew growing up then. Yeah. Um, in terms of when he went in, you, so you went to Colorado first. I would love for you to, to describe kind of what what that experience is like uh, being an active duty wife. Because I know, uh, you know, from having uh, you know, put a woman through that as well and, and working with a lot of guys that did, there, there's a very um, special experience, I think, that only you guys really understand. And, and I think it's one that gets overlooked quite a bit, uh, you know, by society, by even military I think they're they're better about it now than they were you know even 10 or 15 years ago but but there's still it's it's kind of like a, a bit of a thankless job that you're dependent on for really everything um, you know and you've you've got to kind of really um, you know buck up and, and do a lot of things yourself uh, can you kind of walk us through what what that experience is like and, and how it impacts uh, both you and and the family that way yeah it's uh it's a huge challenge, especially since the military moves you so much. So being from California and then all of a sudden being in Colorado and I have no family. So if anything goes wrong, I have, there, there are no options. I have my kids and me and that's it. So yeah. I have to figure it out. Even friends, not really any. You know, yeah, not when you first get there. And even then, you know, your friends are doing the same thing you are. So you depend on them, but sometimes it's just, you know. And for me, since my kids were babies and a lot of my friends' kids were babies, we were so busy that you don't want to call and say, hey, can you watch these guys for a minute or can you do this for me? Yeah. So most of the time it's, okay, how am I going to figure this out? You know, me and the kids ride our bikes up to the park and then suddenly a huge thunderstorm rolls in. Well, no one's going to come pick me up. So I've got kids crying and I've got trikes and I'm holding both kids and tricycles and I'm running back home while it's lightning and raining because no one's going to come pick me up or save me. You know, so, and I mean, that's just, you know, a small example, but I mean, everything is that way. So one of the things I think, again, people don't, don't think about unless you've been through it is you know, there's such a contrast between when he's there and when he's not there. And, you know, to me, I, I know for me, it, it was almost like they get so used to you being gone that when you're there, it kind of screws things up almost a little bit. You know, it's like, hey, I had my routine. I had everything. Now you come in and, you know, it's like you spoil the kids and you, you do this and you bounce. And it's like you're kind of screwing my my vibe up here. Did, did you have that same experience? Yeah. And, and a lot of times, too, men will come back. I've talked about this with a lot of my friends. And they'll be frustrated when the kids aren't behaving because they're used to being with their men. And if they're older, they're used to ordering all the younger guys around. So then they'll speak to the kids the way they speak to the uh, men. And, you know, so then you have to pull your husband aside and say, hey, this will affect your relationship with your kids. So you need to handle him according to how you want your relationship long sh- long term to look. Yeah. So, like, step aside. I will handle it. And when you're ready... You know, did you, like calm did you down. have to do that with Brian? Yeah, yeah. occasionally. Yeah. yeah, it didn't happen too often, but yeah, absolutely. Because it's just, you know, you want to come home, you want to have everybody, you know, you want everything very, you're used to everybody. And with kids, nothing is orderly. Nothing is struck. I mean, you, you can try to be structured a little bit, but with one kid on the spectrum too, I mean, it's just yeah. constant noise, constant chaos. Yeah. 
And coming back to that after being in a, I think being in a war zone and being with guys and knowing that everything needs to be structured, having the noise and the chaos, it just, you know, and so I would have to tell him like, go ahead up there with whichever kid is not freaking out right now. And you guys go enjoy your time and I'll, I'll deal with this. Yeah. I, I mean, I can tell you from, from personal experience, exactly the same is that, you know, to, to look back on, on my kids as they grew up, uh, you know, I got out when they were, you know, two and four, basically, um, you know, and so that kind of carryover similarly was was very much that way. And and I, I think for for guys like us, it's it borders on impossible, or it's very very difficult to just flip that switch and, and move over to, you know, when when you've lived a certain way. And and, and as you well know, like that's. It's not a job, you know, it's absolutely a way of life, you know, and and those principles of, you know, this needs to be done, it needs to be done right now, it needs to be done exactly how how I say it needs to be done, Uh, and and if it doesn't happen that way, people can lose their lives. So there's an undertone of seriousness that just gets kind of subconsciously embedded into interacting with with anybody when you're telling them to do something or, or, you know, giving directions, instructions, etc., And being able to remove that, I know for me, I struggled really, really hard with that uh, while my kids were younger. Um, you know, I, I am, uh, I would say, proud of myself uh, to have kind of come full circle and, and really realized how, how that can impact them detrimentally and, and how, uh, you know, that, that can make the relationship strained in certain ways and, and make them either despise or resent or fear you and... and uh, and none of those things are good. And, and uh, you know, yeah, like I said, for, you know, for me hearing that, it certainly brings back memories of, of me going through that, that same kind of thing. Is that, you know, hey, these emotionally, they're not adults. You know, they don't have the logic and reason that adults have, let alone, you know, a professional soldier. And, and they have to be handled differently. And, and it, it is tough. It, uh, you know, it's something that I would say, you know, I, I try not to look back at my life and have regrets. But on the same token, I wish I had I had handled uh, them better when they were real young that way. But um, well, and I think you get in those third world countries and you see these children who have so little and behave so differently than your kids and take on so much more responsibility. And it's hard to come back and see kids, your kids, at the same age. Entitled. Yeah, and sure and, and you see you that's your first response is these kids are so entitled and I want I, they should be more responsible and they should be but they don't have the life experience to to behave the way the kids in the third world countries yeah. do nor, nor and would I want them to have no that, yeah. and honestly I after losing Brian my children became more responsible they and I realized that's the difference it's hardship it's heartbreak it's it's these things, it's like the year Brian died, I knew, like, I always said the magic was gone, and it broke my heart because they, they no longer, there was no Santa Claus anymore. There was no Easter Bunny, you know, they're like, they're... They lost their innocence. Yeah. Yeah. And I hated that. I, I understand 100%. Um, he did a, a couple of deployments before the, the Niger deployment. Um, what were those like in terms of... Just you know anything that he brought back, uh, baggage, emotional baggage wise or or um, experience wise, was there any of that or not much? You know, I think more than anything, um, he was on a B team when he went to Afghanistan, which was great because he got a lot of experience and he was really excited. Um, he saw a lot of you know just 
different groups over there working that he interacted with because the base was big. And so he had all, came back with all these ideas of other jobs he might want to do when he was done doing what, you know, what he was doing with his um, teams. Um, but he wasn't sure. Um, but, he, you know, he brought back, um, I don't know, gifts and stuff, which was great. But, um, yeah, Afghanistan was, was a nice deployment for us because we could talk. So he would, I remember being blown away because he would call and, and we'd be on the phone. And after the Q course, you know, this is huge. Like yeah. every week he's gone, I might get calls two or three times a week, which was incredible. Yeah. You know, after him being in the Q course for three years, it was like, I wasn't used to talking to him unless he was home yeah. and that was it. And, and he'd be gone for these, I mean, weeks at a time and then he'd be home for a couple days and then gone again. Yeah. So I was like, wow, I'm getting to talk to him every single day almost for the entire deployment. But then um, the first uh, deployment to Niger, they were in a place called Marathi and it was when they left, I think it might've been a month or two before I heard from him. It was a long time. Yeah. And uh, he decided he liked the, he was as cheap as they come. So of course <laughs> he was convinced he could buy any phone he wanted yeah. and he'd be good. Yeah. Um, so he bought, some, bought something called an Alcatel. And of course he got there and everyone else had iPhones and yeah. he had to start borrowing phones to yeah. call me. Um, yeah, even switching SIM cards or whatever, nothing worked. He had to just wait until his next deployment. Other than that, he was actually calling me from David's phone. Oh, wow. And so I would try and call him back, and David would answer, and I was getting so confused. But, yeah, I didn't hear from him for almost, I'd say, at least a month, maybe longer. And then it was trying to use the office phone. But, you know, there's a lot of reasons why you don't want to keep the office phone tied up and he was competing with other guys who were trying to use the office phone when they could to call home so i heard from him maybe every other week um if i was lucky i'd hear from him twice um but usually the kids were in bed and and same with with the um second deployment when he was killed in in terms of that his second deployment uh overall um, when he came back from that, did he describe or talk about much of what went on, or did you guys not talk a whole lot about uh, kind of the, the nature of the, the reason they were there and some of the, the objectives they were trying to achieve? We didn't talk a ton about it. I know he kept telling me that it's one of the safest safest places for him to be, considering what his job was, because they were there on an advise and assist, so they were there training um, their Nigerian counterparts, and Marathi was very um, quiet as far as militant activity. So they didn't have a ton um, that they were doing. He said their biggest problem were um, cattle thieves, Hmm. people who were stealing other people's livestock. And that was their biggest thing, was going out on patrols looking for livestock thieves. Was there an element of of your thought process? I know because my first reaction to that is why, why are Green Berets there dealing with that in the first place. Was there any of that kind of questioning on your end of like, why, why are you in this part of the world doing things that from a overqualified skill set standpoint seem a little below your pay grade in terms of what you should be worrying about? I think a lot of people have that reaction. But the main thing that I always go back to is that Niger is our ally. 
and they specifically asked us to come in and train their group, their um, troops so that their troops could then do everything to protect their borders from the rise of militants in the region. And that's, you know, that's important globally to keep the rise of militants, you know, ISIS um, tamped down. And so if we do have a country that's asking us to come in and train them so that they can proactively work to um, keep those militants at bay, then that's great. That's that's a lot less money being poured into that objective than putting boots on the ground for a war, yeah. you know, and, and handling it ourselves. I would rather yeah. us send people over to train their troops. Sure. Um, yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, um, so that's kind of how I've, you know, I've read up a little bit on it, obviously, yeah. <laughs> quite a bit. Yeah, um, I, and, and in the end, I'm, I'm like, that's, that's really what they're doing over there. That's what they were supposed to be doing. Yeah. And that's why the... Um, the uh, the mission they went on in which they were ambushed made no sense, yeah. you know, because yeah. that's not what they were there to do, and they did not have the proper assets or backup or any support yeah. to be doing what they were doing. Yeah. So they should. I would never say that they were. They should not have been in the country, but they should not have been doing what they were doing yeah. on that mission yeah. at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me the where I, I wouldn't say struggle with it, but just maybe question is that, you know, there are there are so many places all over the world where that's the case, where, you know, the host nations are, are allies of ours and, and are begging for us to, to intervene in, in similar situations. And I know this is way above my, my pay grade, but, uh, but I also think, you know, if we're going to send our guys places, you know, it, it, where things like that can happen, because, you know, no matter how benign of an environment it seems like or, or how safe... Uh, you know, you, you try to make it. The fact is, is that uh, you know things still still can and do go wrong. You know, and, and if we're going to put our guys in in a position where that might happen, just just might happen, not even probably will happen. To me, it it, it should overwhelmingly be worth it. I mean, that, that's how I view it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not what I would consider hawkish uh, in terms of my foreign policy beliefs, uh, especially after. You know, serving 12 and a half years and now being out for about that same amount of time, uh, you know, my thought processes have, have shifted pretty pretty significantly in terms of what we do and why and, and what have you. But that that's what makes me think about that. Um, so w- when he came back, it sounds like, um, you know, now learning that he's going to go back a, a second time, you know, you didn't question, you know, him going there the first time, but there was a, a feeling of, if something was was wrong or that was going to be off on the second one what i mean do you suppose that was just some subconscious premonition or or was there something that that uh from an exterior standpoint kind of influenced you that way there was nothing different you know from an exterior standpoint that that would have made me think that it was just pure premonition yeah. you know um before my dad died i i had similar things and he died of a heart attack yeah. <laughs> so i just I don't know. I always have this 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 premonition. You know, I I've always just I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how else to explain it. Have there been instances other than your dad uh, and prior to this deployment that uh, something like that's happened? Yeah. Um, yeah, there happened. Don't want to share them. Uh, <laughs> you don't have to. I'm just. Yeah. Well, you know, one one time I. Um, 
I, you know, my grandpa was going in for heart surgery and I just knew, like he was panicked. He, there was a really high probability that he was gonna die. And I just knew he was not going to die. And I called him up and was like, no, you know, um, I'd been praying about it and it was, you know, it's not your day to die. You're gonna be just fine. And he had another friend call up and said he'd been praying, same thing, it's not your day to die. So there's and been good and, and good and bad. Yeah, um, another one of my my best friend Gwen, my cousin, um, same thing. Right before she met her husband, she'd gone through a horrible breakup, and it just had this thing where I was like, "No, you're going to meet this big blonde-haired guy, and you guys are going to end up getting married." And she met Greg just maybe a month or two later, and big blonde-haired guy. Yep, big blonde-haired guy. Do you believe in psychics? No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you kind of sound like one. I know. I, I, you, but will it's you read my palms I, or what? Like, yeah, no. I, you know, it's not something I would ever. Yeah. I just figure it's, it's, it's. I don't know. Can something. you at least let me know if you get some weird vibe? Oh, if I let you know, okay. yeah. Okay. If it happens, give I'll me, let you know. I'll at least give you a weird look. <laughs> You'll know <laughs> something's up. I appreciate it. Oh uh, yeah, but um, I don't know. It's just weird things, you yeah. know, with people close to me usually. Yeah. So um, I don't know. So he goes on the deployment. Did you have that feeling the entire time, or was it just before? The entire time. Yeah. It just got stronger as it went on. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's funny because he left, and I had a really hard time letting him go that time. And I knew in my mind, I kept trying to tell myself, okay, there's, this is unreasonable. This doesn't make sense. But then I found myself looking out my windows constantly, expecting to see men in uniform walking across my um, grass yeah. towards my front door. And so... I realized I was doing this subconsciously, like constantly looking for men in uniforms, which was weird because I'd never worried about him being um, killed overseas or in any sort of trouble. And it's like I had just accepted that this was going to happen. Um, And that was from the day he left. And then I kept trying to reason with myself and say, okay, this, this isn't reasonable. Um, this is not going to happen. And then one night, my son Isaac actually came up to me and said, Mom, Dad's not coming back, is he? I mean, just out of the blue. How we far hadn't discussed it. Uh, about four weeks. So right before? Right before. Wow. And I just went, no, no, you know, totally lying to him. Uh, of course he's coming back. And, you know, we just need to pray. And it was at that point that I was almost in a pure panic, and I think it was the next week that he was killed. Has uh, Isaac shown any of that type of premonition stuff also other than that, or that was the only? No, that was the only time did, he's done that. Um, as, a, as a mom, did you ask him, like, why would you say that, or what, what is making you think that? Did you ask him anything like that? No, I had a feeling. He's very, he and I are very similar, yeah. so I just thought he's probably... Picking up on the same Yeah. Stuff. Um, the, the, in terms of the last conversation that you had with him, um, w- was there anything out of the ordinary uh, for during that conversation, or was it pretty pretty normal? Um, it was fairly normal. He said that they were, you know, going back up towards the Mali border. They were going to this little town called Tillawa. He was not happy about it. He thought it was a stupid mission. But I mean, yeah. that was Brian. He was always pretty direct. Yeah. Stupid. And, but they had to go, and, you know, um, yeah. So. What was the last thing that he, uh, that he said to you? He said that he loved me, and he'd talk to me soon. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so then a few days later, uh, the, the fateful day where you, you hear about it on the news first, basically, that something happened there. Yeah. Uh, at that point, um, was there an element of, of you just kind of knew that that was the case, or were you still kind of hoping for the best, or, or what was your mentality like at that point? I think I knew, but I was fighting for it not to be true. Um, my mother-in-law, actually, I'd been avoiding talking to her because by then I felt like it had built up to a point, especially with what Isaac had said. That, and then my last discussion with Brian, that until he called me again, I refused to call his mom. She and I were close, and I just, we talked fairly often, um, especially when he was gone, and I refused to talk to her. So um, she actually called me and said, hey, I uh, just saw a news flash come across the, you know, my phone and it says that a team um, up near the Mali border was attacked and a few Americans were killed. And I instantly just said, that was Brian's team. That's Brian. Brian's dead. And, um, the, and it was, you know, I think it surprised her. And she was like, oh, no, we don't know that. You know, I just thought I ought to let you know. And I was like, no. They, okay, and I tried to calm down and like, okay, you're right, because I didn't want to freak her out. And so I started making phone calls, but with each phone call, it became more obvious that it was Brian was probably one of the either injured or dead. Yeah. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, and, yeah. The, um, the, the depiction uh, in terms of how you describe that fateful uh, ringing of the of the doorbell or knock on the door with the chaplains and and the guys in uniform is is very reminiscent to me of of how it's depicted in the in a lot of movies um and, and i will say that that, that and um and where you talk about having to to tell your your boys uh, both of those instances i got i got choked up reading the book for for 100 percent um was there like an element of uh, when when that's taking place that you almost feel like um, you're outside of your own body looking in, uh, or or what what was that experience like to to the best of your recollection? 
It wasn't like I was outside my body looking in. It felt like, you know those times where your whole face is, is almost numb and everything is just, like, you, I don't know how to explain it. Um, not numb, but... I can't... It's... Because you're in, you're in shock. So I remember when they first told me I almost felt like if they didn't tell me, they just, like, because when I opened the door, it was like, I already know that would have been easier just to shut the door. Um, But as they read the words to me, it just felt like each word had the weight of a brick. Like, it just was coming at me and just knocking me out, you know? And, And so by the time it was confirmed, I mean, I literally, even though I'd had all these premonitions... I remember distinctively going into shock, and I couldn't move, I couldn't think, you know, I remember staring at the wall for like 12 hours just drinking water, and that was it, I couldn't respond to anyone, Um, and that's why I didn't tell the kids that night, they were asleep, and I just, I couldn't cope, I couldn't sleep, Um, and the next morning I just pretended like everything was fine, because I needed people there, and I needed to have enough time to know how to cope and tell them. And by the time I told them, um, it wasn't an out-of-body type experience, but it was like a hyper-awake, aware experience that made it twice as awful. Um, I I imagine like maybe, I I mean, I've never been in battle, but when you're in battle and your your senses are all keyed up and you're just, you're responding and that's all you're doing. Yeah, it's, it's afterward that's... Yeah, and so as I'm telling the kids, it's just, you know, my father-in-law says, you know, do you want me to tell them? And it's just, no, this is my job. It just it felt very like I had to fight for everything. Well, I, I, I can empathize and, and 100% understand in the book. You say, yeah, I do want you to tell them, but, but no, I need to do it. You know, I, I can... Yeah. I can certainly relate to that. Like it, it would be way, way better if I didn't have to do this, but it's my job. And I, again, it's just something that, as I was reading it, I was like, I, I really respected you doing that because uh, I, I agree, and that, that that has to come come from you. you yeah. Know? Um, I couldn't. I, I thought the the hate and the anger that's going to come from them that should never be put on Henry, yeah. on on their grandpa. Yeah. You know, because he just lost his son, and that's horrible. You know, he shouldn't have to tell his grandkids something like that. Um, that's yeah, that's my job. Yeah, um, yeah. And again, in, in reading both of those parts, especially the, the telling the kids as, as a dad, just uh, you know, reading that really uh, really punched me in the in the stomach for sure. Um, but again, I, I respect the hell out of uh, of you being the one to do it. I I saw or read and, and found kind of a recurring theme uh, throughout the book. That, that again, I, I found very uh, admirable and honorable, which is the strength that you um, pulled from Brian in terms of well, how would how would he want me to handle this type type of mentality of you know what you know what would he do or, or how how would he want me to act and that's one thing that that uh, you know I I uh, am very adamant about when uh, you know whether it's a ton of friends that I've lost or or teammates of mine that that we've collectively lost the same friends and they're having a real hard time with it. Um, and this is advice I give to a, a lot of people that 
right into the show and ask, you know, hey, I just lost so and so. You know, how do you how do you deal with it? You've been through a lot of that kind of stuff. And to me, I always look at it that exact same way. Frankly, is that you know I, I put myself in their shoes and say, you know, if, if it were me that was gone and they were moping and, and feeling sorry and whatever, like I would want to reach through the afterlife and slap the shit out of them right. and say, hey, you know, like you're still here, you got a job to do, we've got kids, or you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, I'm gone, you're not, you know, don't don't waste that opportunity on on feeling bad for me or for for yourself or, or whatever, and I think. I think that's important, you know, because I, I know that's how I feel. I, I wouldn't want people to, to mope and, and feel like their lives are over because I'm gone. I, I would want the exact opposite and, and them to, uh, you know, appreciate the fact that they're still here and, and that there's a job to do and, and what have you. But uh, one of the excerpts that I wanted to read um, that I just thought was really awesome, the, the way that you penned it uh, in terms of the aftermath and, and kind of how... Uh, how you were handling it is, is words that you said that you repeated. Uh, and it, uh, you state, I repeated in my head the thoughts that had kept me going since the beginning of October. I am heartbroken, but I am not broken. I will face this with fury and let every ounce of it hit me full force and dare it to break me. I've heard it said that you marry your equal. If that's true, I'm a beast, a force to be reckoned with. I will do Brian proud. This is my mantra. I will take deep breaths, hold my children close, and handle things. I will not be another victim of the men who took my husband's life and those of his fellow soldiers. Those men were left in a desert without a choice, but I have a choice. My children and I will not be further victims of this tragedy. We will be victors. Um, you know, to me, I just think that's so so powerful to uh, to look at it that way, and especially uh, to repeat that, you know, kind of to yourself over and over. Did you find yourself having to, to remind yourself of that pretty pretty often? Yeah, um, but you know, I think that's something deep ingrained between, you know, I think it's it's part of who I am anymore. And so anytime something, you, there was so much that would come at you and, and you had to find a place that you were gonna react to it from. And you've got to figure when it when it was the video that was released of their deaths, if it was, you know, the media saying that they, you know, that they were at fault for their own um, demise, if it was, you know, just whoever, you had to know who you are, and who they were, and just come at it and attack it instead of let it attack you. Yeah. And so yeah, it just became the mantra. Who, yeah, who yeah. I am. Yeah, I love it. I think it's awesome. Uh, and very inspiring. Uh, equally inspiring was reading about uh, the Patriot Guard and kind of the freeway reception, uh, you know, along the, the roads uh, during the ceremony, um, or sorry, during the funeral. The um, I've seen that here in Texas, uh, you know, with Chris Kyle's funeral was that way, and, and a few others, whether it's police or whatever, and the the feeling of, of strength and, and kind of community that, that you pull from that is impossible to describe. Uh, I think you do a really good job of, of you know, kind of giving the reader some insight into that, but I, I can only imagine it's a thousandfold when it's, you know, your husband that that is, is why they're doing that for. Can you talk a little bit about how, how special that was and, and what that feeling was like? Yeah, it's funny because I had no idea that... that they were coming or who they were. So um, I think it was overwhelming to see the amount of support. Yeah. Um, you know, 
I say it in, in different in a different spot, but I talk about how when I lost my dad, you know, he was this incredible man that nobody noticed left the world. Yeah. And here, Brian, same thing, this incredible man that was taken. And as we left, I mean, there are people with, you know, fire departments and police on every single freeway pass for the hour-long drive back to Fayetteville, cars pulling over, saluting, um, and the Patriot Guard riders um, surrounding us the entire way. We just felt it, it was overwhelming. We were in tears throughout because we just felt like completely um, in, enveloped or like, like, yeah, that we were safe. Yeah. Um, and considering everything that happened throughout with the media involvement and um, the different things, this felt like a very safe space because yeah. I, I wasn't at a point in my grief where I could handle the media. And they were very much there. But this kind of gave us a little buffer from that. But it also was just a lot of everyday citizens out there um, supporting us. And a lot more than I expected. Um, Even when we got back into Fayetteville and every street, um, Ramsey Street is this (laughs) really long road. And all the way down Ramsey Street, starting from the first freeway off-ramp all the way down to the funeral home, which is several miles, there were just people lining both sides of the street with banners. And, I mean, it it just, it was really overwhelming and blew my mind. Um, It it was, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I I was in the procession for uh, Glenn Doherty, who was one of the SEALs killed in Benghazi. And uh, actually that that hat uh, that's that's in that box was... A John Deere hat that I, I gave him that he had with him, uh, you know, when that happened. But uh, he's from Boston, and we went uh, to his funeral. Uh, and, and again, we were in the procession. Uh, they had the uh, the bagpipe uh, guard from the Boston police, and, and same kind of thing. Like just the streets were just lined with people with signs, and wow. uh, you know, I've got some some short video clips still still to this day on my phone of it that uh, I get. Uh, you know, choked up watching and even hearing about it again. It's just that it's such a special moment that uh, you know make, makes makes you feel like uh, like people care, yeah. you know, and and that it that it wasn't for nothing, and, and that, uh, that people are going to remember and they appreciate that sacrifice, which is everything, you know. So it, it was really neat to to read that. And I uh, think that was a big. I wanted to put that in there because I was I realized there there were way too many people involved for me to ever be able to tell each one of them what a huge deal it was that they were there. Yeah. They, you know, and they may never know. They just showed up one day, and or maybe they do this all the time, and they don't really know how it affects the families, but it was huge. Yeah. We, I think we cried the whole way down just because of it. Like, it was our first happy tears yeah. in so long. Yeah. Um, so that was Yeah, it's a special moment, no doubt about it. Do you have any of that on video? No, we, we weren't expecting. Well, my mother-in-law might. She's a big picture person, so she if, probably uh, had her phone out. If, if she does, I'd love to embed some of that into into the interview while we talk about it. If uh, okay, if you could her. find it and, and have it, that'd be that'd be really neat uh, yeah. to, to put in. Um, I love the consistency of, of kind of the way that you handle the boys in terms of at the funeral. Um, you know where um, you know one of your sons asked to to see his dad, and, and you say no. Um, and, and I found it again, just kind of refreshing and, and, uh, and, and just, just really neat, frankly, that, 
your consistency with them of saying, you know, I, I want to look, uh, but if I do, I've got to give them the option to do it also, and I, and I don't want them to, to do that. And, and I certainly know the feeling. It's one of those things where you want to look, but then it's something you can't unsee ever, you know. And uh, I am curious, I mean, looking back on it now, uh, still glad that you handled it that way or, or any regret? that For my kids, yes. I mean, of course, I, I always wish I had gone and said goodbye one last time, yeah. and that's, that's hard. Yeah. But um, not doing that, sacrificing that for them, well I'm okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, again, I, I think you know that that consistency is something that uh, that's so lacking, you know, in, in a lot of ways in our society with parents and and what have you. That it's it's neat to see that, uh, that that's the case. Um, all right, so the Trump call, which I, you know, when I first read the the first part of it, I was like, man, that's really awesome, you know, that that he talked to you, and uh, I love the part. Uh, similarly, like. Most people say, you know, if, if you need anything, don't hesitate to ask. And nobody ever says, yeah, you know what, I do need something. I love that you were like, yeah, you know what, I want to stay at your hotel. You know, my son's a big fan. And, like, I just thought that that was, it was funny but really cool that, uh, that you pulled the, uh, kind of pulled the trigger on that. But, uh, but then the aftermath of, you know, one of the things that you said to him that to this day, I don't know, do you know if that's where that came from, that he repeated that? To I don't know. I often wonder if, if he thought that me saying it meant that that's, that's a mentality that we all have, and so you get to just say it. I, I guess for, but, for the listener that hasn't read that yet, if you can kind of give us the play-by-play on the call. So, um, gosh, I remember I had to listen to it to remember exactly how it was said. But Do you have it on when, recording? Uh, I mean, not here. But, somewhere, yeah. maybe, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, oh, my mother-in-law had it. That's, that's how I found it. So I was like, I need to remember the exact wording. But, yeah, he... Um, he called, and, and he talks a lot, and he's loud, which was great, because I, I couldn't really come up with what I wanted to say anyway. I was yeah. too exhausted. Um, and he, you know, had said, you know, how are you guys doing, whatever. And, you know, you never expect this to happen. And I said, well, you know, you do and you don't. But we always knew this was a possibility. Um, but still, it, it's hard when it happens to you. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, and, and went on. Well, later he said to one of the other widows, he started the conversation and then actually said to her, you always know this is a possibility, but it still hurts anyways. And when I heard, even though it wasn't the exact language, it was the same sentiment, and I felt responsible because he called her, I think, directly after he called me because the timing was very, like, it was almost a few, I think... When I looked back on it, they were maybe 20 minutes apart. And I realized he probably called her right after he called me. And the timing, uh, between the timing and the wording, I, I felt guilty for a long time that, that maybe I, I caused it. And I don't think many people know that when you lose someone, you can say what you want, but a lot, but you should never repeat what someone who's grieving is saying to somebody else who's grieving. You know, it's kind of like talking about somebody else's mom. I could say whatever I want about my mom, but if you say what, you, you know, what I say about my mom, I might kill you. So, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, President Trump's certainly not, not known for his tact, uh, A, and B. I mean, it, to me, in, in reading it, I, I, I was not frustrated, but I could just see the kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, that's such a hard 
situation to, to go through where somebody isn't going to criticize you for either you know saying too much or not enough or the wrong thing or you know it's just like you, you can't make everybody happy I am curious though to this day do you know if if he did say he knew what he signed up for or is that still uh, um, I don't that's what she says and honestly I wasn't there so I tend to just he probably I mean I'm not gonna say he probably did yeah. but she's a grieving widow yeah so whether that's exactly what he said or not, either way, her feelings were hurt. Yeah. And I think as a president, it's kind of like you have the world at your fingertips and she just lost her whole yeah. whole world. Like your, your one job is to not make it worse. Yeah, yeah, like at that point, whether that's what you meant or that's what you said, I don't think it's relevant. Yeah. I think that's a good time to just say, I am so sorry I hurt your feelings and move on. Yeah, and that's one thing I will say, uh, you know, he's not not particularly uh, competent at is, you know, being like, yeah, you know what, I could have handled that better, you know, and, and to me that's one of those moments where that's just the right thing to say is like, hey, you know, I, I didn't didn't mean to, to make things worse. I was trying to console her. I, d I didn't do as good a job as I could have, and I'm sorry. Like, if you would have just said yeah. that, I think it would have been over, you know. Yeah, but, like honesty and humility go yeah. a long way. Yeah, for sure. You know. Um, it was frustrating just just reading it, and I know you know you, you kind of echo that sentiment throughout the book in that so much focus is now turned on on the phone call to where kind of everything else is forgotten. You know the fact yeah. that, that these guys are gone and why they were there and the controversy surrounding that and, and the, the ongoing investigation they're they're not really being uh, much focus, especially on the media. The media is more worried about motherfucking Trump, uh, you know, right. over the phone call, you know, language than, than they are about what happened, which... Even now, people will comment, you know, oh, this was Trump's Benghazi, or, or this Trump caused this. This is because of his... Yeah. You know, I've even had radio interviews with that. Well, you know, now that the administration changed this, this, you know, yeah. this, this kind of thing won't happen. And I laugh because I'm like, it has nothing to do with presidents. They're not yeah. aware of what a 12-man team in yeah. the middle of nowhere Africa is doing. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, a general issue. Yeah, I mean, aside of bin Laden raid or, you know, the al-Baghdadi raid or, you know, something that high level, yeah, they, they don't have any, any tactical control over that. But... Um, the uh, so the White House visit in the Trump Hotel. I, I again reading that it was it was neat to see that uh, you know that they they honored your request of, of being able to to do both of those things, which was really cool. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So we um, when when Trump like like you said he said hey you know well if there's ever anything I can do for you and I said well you know we we're going to be in D.C. when we bury Brian at Arlington and. Um, we'd love to stay at your hotel, but clearly as military, we can't afford it, you know? Um, so is that something we can do? And he said, absolutely. He got us a room and we stayed at the hotel. Um, he gave us two rooms actually adjoined and one to mess up and one to sleep in, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> one for the kids to jump on the beds and yeah. eat everything out of the fridge. Yeah. Um, so he covered all of that, um, which was amazing. So we got to have just two like restful. I mean, you know, I don't, I didn't sleep, but I tried. You know, I had some good, some good whiskey though. What, um, uh, what kind of whiskey was it? Do you I don't even remember now. I just remember it was 
expensive and I didn't have to pay. <laughs> and I was really excited. <laughs> I raided the mini bar and I don't give a shit what was in it. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Well, I went down every night into this the big lobby and I just ordered whatever the most expensive drink was. And I was like, oh, this is great. That's awesome. <laughs> Stuff I usually wouldn't be willing to pay for, you know. Yeah. Um, so I did that. And then... Um, yeah, and then we had a free day, so I asked my CAO, because um, he, he wanted to know, well, what tours would you like to do while you're in D.C.? And we had just been to D.C. with Brian, and the only places we didn't go was Arlington and the White House. Um, I mean, I'm sure there were other little things we didn't do, but we, we spent a solid week and a half, so we had done a lot. And I thought, I don't want to backtrack with the kids to the places we were just at with their dad. That would be really hard um, and exhausting. And so... I asked the CAO, more in a joking manner, I was like, well, you know, we're staying at Trump's hotel, he should probably, like, give us a tour of the White House. So, next thing I know, we were getting a um, private tour of the White House with uh, a military aide to the president and a White House historian. So, any, you know, roped-off areas we could go into, we went into the theater, we went into, um, I mean, just all over, it it was really incredible. So we walked down the West Wing, ran into Pence, got to see the motorcade. And, and he, uh, you, you describe in the book, like he was legitimately choked up on huh, when, when... He was. He, um, his, yeah, he definitely had tears in his eyes and gave me a long hug and... Like uncomfortably long? <laughs> it was bordering. Yeah. It was, it was like just, you know, he came, gave me a hug and then... It took him a minute to recover after he hugged me. I think he was, like, trying not to cry. And then he walked down and said hi to everybody else and gave my mother-in-law a hug and then moved on. But, yeah, he was was definitely um, legitimately moved, which was really sweet, you know. Um, No, that's for sure neat. Um, So you go through that whole process. uh, You know, again, it was was neat to see that that was honored. Um, when, When you come back now after that, um, is there a feeling, and I know for me there has been, but I, I also, you know, didn't lose a spouse. I, I lost, you know, people that I lived with. I, yes, I lost close friends, but it's different, you know, when you, when you lose a spouse and the father of your children. You know, that, that's a much bigger impact on your day-to-day life than, than anything. Um, you know, I, I found myself wondering, you know, the quote-unquote back to normal, which, you know, is, isn't, but, you know, you're, you're now new normal uh, was there a kind of a feeling of, of uh, you know, like guys, you know, a little bit like, you know, up, and, up until the, the funeral and the, you know, Arlington and the White House and, and everything else, like everybody's kind of there for you and it's, hey, what, what can we do, what can we do? I, I have often heard a lot of uh, Gold Star families uh, kind of speak to after all of that is, is really when you, you need the most help and, and support and that's usually where it's the thinnest. Is yeah. that it's, you know, kind of, okay, he's buried, you know, you're, you're good, we got everything, okay, you know, and then everybody kind of three sheets to the wind. Did you find that that to kind of happen and be, be tough to deal with? Yeah, people don't get that um, you're in shock when all of that happens, when the first few weeks. So you, they end up saying, oh, you're so strong, but you're in shock. So you're actually comforting them. That's That's the hardest time for them. Yeah. But after that, they've, felt their emotions, they've done whatever, and that person wasn't their future. It wasn't a close, you know, a lot of my friends, they didn't spend that much time with Brian because he was always gone. They knew him, and it was really hard for them to see what I was going through that first week. 
you know, or two. And so there was a lot of emotion in that for them. But afterwards, they're fine. So they assume I'm fine because their emotion is gone. But my shock is wearing off, and there's nobody there. And I'm beginning to realize, yeah, where is everybody? I'm completely alone. I'm still dealing with all this stuff. And, I mean, then other things begin to pile on as far as things that were coming out um, in the media, things that were coming out um, just, like, you know, um, just with the investigation and then, you know, all of that. And then uh, things going on with my kids at school because of losing their dad and the, the way they weren't handling it very well. And I had no one around to say they were okay with me. You know, I had a few friends, but they, they didn't know how to deal with me. You know, I think they I, they looked at me like scared. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like she's going to blow at any moment. So, um, at yeah. that point, did you continue to draw strength from your, your mantra and from Brian? Was that, was that kind of the thing that got you through that the most, or was there anything else? That, uh, that and my father-in-law, Henry, he um, moved in with me for the time being, and it was nice to be able to have somebody who was in that same mindset that I was, yeah. just barely surviving, and being able to go through the same stuff, yeah. and yeah. I'm assuming he st- probably stepped in and played a pretty big role with the with the kids too. He did, yeah. yeah. Which that reminds me uh, the the other excerpt that I wanted to read uh, in terms of you handling uh, the kids, which I thought was, you know, again I was just very inspired by, um, you know, how how you conducted yourself. Frankly, is that uh, in this case it was uh, Ezekiel was uh, was wrestling, and uh, you know. Didn't go so well or or what have you, and and, uh, the excerpt reads like this. Ezekiel walked off the mat that day bleeding, sobbing, red-faced, and hyperventilating. I walked him out into a deserted hallway to calm him. He began to yell that he was done. Never again was he going to wrestle, so we walked and paced as he continued breathing erratically and sobbing for another few minutes. Finally, I told him it was time to stop. Sometimes it just sucks like everything else in life, and today was one of those days. It's okay to be upset, but it's time to calm down. Then, just like with his brother, I told him everything he did right as I cleaned the blood off his face and hands. I brought Zeke close and held him as I whispered that he had wrestled better than I'd ever seen him wrestle. He had fought in a way that would have made his dad so proud. We sat hiding in the corner of that deserted hallway, clinging to each other until the tears subsided and we could breathe again. Uh, you know, to me, that's while that's a, a wrestling uh, experience. I think it speaks to the broader mentality that, that probably both of your kids were facing. And again, I, I read that, and, and I just I marvel at uh, at how well you handled that. Um, you know, it's it's like in, in thinking through it, which you know, not being in the moment, it's easy to, to second guess. You know, not handling it right. But in in reading it, it's like you know, you you, you did that right there in the moment better than I think, you know, most people could have with two hours to, to figure out how to handle it, you know, and it's just, uh, again, it's so so awesome to see and inspiring to to read that uh, because it, it's so so well done and, and had to have made such an impact, uh, you know, on him, not just in that moment, but his, his life moving forward. Uh, so I, I, again, I just, my hat's off to you on that. Um, any, anything you want to share about that that moment or... That was just, you know, that that day, it's, it's crazy because there's not many memories I have from that time period that are crystal clear. I, 
I guess that's just an after effect of grief and loss. But that day was just solid in my mind because both my kids lost and I had to drag them both out into the hallway and have that talk with them. And I just remember thinking, like, we are fighting for our lives. This isn't just wrestling. This is fighting for our, you know, our sanity. This is fighting for um, survival. Like, if we don't survive here, then everything else is just going to unwind and fall apart. And so I think that's kind of where a lot of those speeches came from. It just was like, this hurts, it's hard, but we're going to do hard things, and we're going to survive. And again, like, we're going to be victors. We will not be victims ever because nobody said life was going to be fair, you know? I love it. Uh, Do either of them still wrestle? Um, One of them wants to do jujitsu, so I'm going to do that in the fall. The other one is doing swim team and water polo. Yeah, well, it's California for you, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All the best swimmers and polo players come from California. Yeah. Um, All right, so now things start to subside in terms of, you know, the, the shock wearing off and now going into more of a grieving period. You find yourself basically having that scab continually ripped off with this investigation and, and how poorly it was handled as well as, you know, the, the lack of accountability, which I, I found as being just a, a recurrent theme throughout is that the further you go up, the more it seemed like it was, it's not my fault. You know, these guys, you know, it's just passing the buck and not taking accountability, which frankly just drives me fucking crazy to see military guys do stuff like that. Um, that in conjunction with the video footage, which um, you know, I, I remember very, very distinctly, very vividly when when that came out, and, and I already was was pretty familiar with the story, uh, even though I, I didn't know Brian, I didn't know anybody else from the team, but uh, just you know, with my background and, and being uh, you know in, in similar situations, uh, you know, I, I pay attention to all that stuff. But uh, the video footage was was really game changer, uh, you know, because nothing like that before had, had really been released. I mean, even the stuff with uh, Marcus and, and the Lone Survivor stuff, I mean, there, there's some footage of that, but it's it's not point of view, you know, right up close type stuff. It's real grainy, shitty, you know, handy cam from, you know, 2,000 yards away type stuff for the most part. Right. Uh, you know, it just isn't the same level of almost movie-like detail. Um, you talk, you know, extensively about it in the book, but if you could kind of summarize the impact that that had on you. Yeah, so in, I want to say it was January, I got a call from my CAO, um, and he basically just said, hey, um, if you're driving, pull over. So I pulled to the side of the road, because I was driving, um, and he said, there's ISIS has a propaganda video that they've released. Um, it hasn't really come over into any American channels yet, but it may. The media will try to get a hold of it. And in the video, they have footage um, from a head cam um, of one of the soldiers they stole from his body, and it shows video of the attack, and it specifically shows your husband being killed. There are also pictures um, and uh, it shows all three men being killed. And we're not sure um, what that'll mean as far as the investigation goes and whether or not the media will get a hold of it, but no doubt they're, they're going to try. Um, 
And honestly, it was so surreal that I think at that point, I just, it, it was overwhelming. But, um, and it delayed the investigation. But after a few months, I kind of forgot about it because it didn't come out. And I think I believed, okay, well, if it hasn't come out by now, then it has been sufficiently tamped down and it won't ever come out. Um, and it was crazy because on a Sunday night at maybe 10 or 11 o'clock at night, I got a phone call from my CAO, and it must have been March, um, so several months later, and he said, it's released. It's CBS News got a hold of it, and they have released it, and it is now spreading across uh, Facebook, I'm trying to breathe, um, YouTube, and Twitter. So. Was there an element of, um, of any legal recourse, or is that protected completely under First Amendment stuff? Uh, I don't know. Was I, there, was there, I guess, was there anything on the U.S. Army's part or CAO, any, any uh, litigation from, from your guys' side that could do anything about that? I mean, obviously, at that, that point, it kind of doesn't matter because once it's out there, yeah. Whether it's video capture or screen grabs or I mean, you know, people. I think the the media has so much protect, so many protections legally, that I don't know that there's any recourse. Um, but you know, um, uh, one of my children I think saw it. I haven't discussed it with him because I'm hoping he didn't. I'm afraid that if I do bring it up with him and he hasn't, then he he'll seek it out. Um, so I had to just let, let the matter sit with him. Yeah. And if, if he saw it, hope that he approaches me. Um, but the next, the next time he was at school, um, there was an incident where he wrote the word Niger across the computer screen. So I, I'm pretty sure he saw it. Um, so as you can imagine, you know, the legal recourse would be nice, um, just to make the point that this should never happen again. Um, but yeah, I think, I, you know, I think what was harder is I, what I tried to do, which is probably crazy, my father-in-law would always tell me not to do this, but I would go through, and any news story, any video, anything including this video, I didn't watch the video until I wrote the book. I would go through and I'd read all the comments because I thought what I want to do is build up strength. And the best thing I can do is read the ugliest comments because then that's the ugliest thing I'll ever face in public. And so going through and reading, you know, different things. And it's funny because I, I would get upset at first. And then after a while, I'd laugh because I thought, here's somebody who's probably sitting, you know, in their recliner. And they're probably living in their mother's basement and they're saying ugly things cheese, about how untrained dust on their yeah how untrained these guys are cuz you know yeah. they did this or that and this is what he would have done and i thought the truth is he probably can't run 20 yards without yeah. you know having to yeah. stop to catch his breath and and then i'm laughing cuz i thought you know my husband he um, he did exactly what he wanted to do he chose the way he died i believe and what an awesome thing. Yeah. He took control of the situation, and he went down the way. If I told him, you're only going to live to 35, this is what he would have done. Yeah. You know, and if I told him, but he could choose to be an armchair quarterback and die in his armchair one day, he would choose to die the way he did. Yeah. And um, 
And for me, there was something very redeeming and, and, and a lot of strength to be gained from that knowledge. And so I found that reading those comments helped me process a lot of that and just go, wow, like, you know, and have a little more compassion for people. Because I thought, Brian got to live his dream. He got to live this incredible life. Yeah. He did so many incredible things, and he got to choose the way he died. Like, I wish we could all be so lucky. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, sure, I legal recourse would be great. What I'd be more interested in, honestly, is making sure that no other family ever has to go through this. Yeah. You know, I look back, just recently, I was thinking about, you know, the first time that they... ISIS put out those videos of the beheadings and, and how controversial that was. And I was thinking, you know, you always wondered who those families were, who those people were. And then it occurred to me, I, I am that family. And I, it, it was surreal because it never occurred to me until recently that I was, I, yeah. I was them. Yeah. Um, and how, you know, you, you can survive that and you can still... Um, choose not to fall apart and not be a victim and have a successful life after something like that happens to you, that that doesn't have to define the rest of your life. Um, So if nothing else, I guess it made me stronger. And I just, I guess all I can do is maybe be grateful for that, even though I hate that it was done. Yeah. Did did you take the same approach towards the video footage as... I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. The casket, did you purposely not not view it? Um, I would have rather gone in and viewed it. Um, uh, in hindsight, just because that is like, there's something about being able to say goodbye. Even like with my dad, even though I looked at it and I was like, that was disturbing for years, I still technically got to go and say, okay, he's not there. You know, there's there's something very final, and um, I don't know, just almost it makes you angry, but it also gives you a little bit of peace. Yeah. And so I would have liked to have done that with Brian, but not at the cost to my kids. And 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 with the video, I realized I couldn't write this section of the book accurately and do it justice um, without watching the video. So I had to compartmentalize it and just. Fortunately, I couldn't see his face. Yeah, I know the way he walks. I know the way he moves. But I would, I just had to pretend he was somebody else. Yeah. And then it, it was, it was doable. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, the the school handling of it, um, as, as this is going on, it's having some pretty negative impacts on the kids. And, and uh, 
I, honestly, I wasn't that surprised at how the school handled it. seems like schools all over the country are, are tripping over themselves nonstop to, to try to fuck something up worse than, than the other school almost, like yeah. it's a competition. But um, what was their problem? I mean, why, why were they... I think um, having a kid on the spectrum, a lot of people would rather... He, Ezekiel, the thing is, he's very high-functioning, and he doesn't seem like he's on the spectrum if you're not aware of what kids on the spectrum look like, how they behave. Um, so they approached him as though he was just a problem child rather than a child who literally had autism. Yeah. And I, they you know, knew, right? I mean, what's that? They knew that he was autistic, right? I mean, yeah, their, their own psychologist had done a report I'd, and had a, done a, a whole thing on him, uh, analysis, and uh, come to the conclusion that, yes, he was on the spectrum and, and worked up a whole IEP and behavior, you know, an individualized education plan, behavior intervention plan, and all of this. And what I found out later was a lot of the teachers had no clue it even existed. Nobody had handed wow. it to them. They weren't following it. Um, yeah, so it turned into just... Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you pull him out of that school? Or did you? I did. Yeah. All right, so the, the further investigation, um, you know, what I, what I found, I guess, is that, you know, one, it just kept kind of coming back to them not really taking accountability and the fact that there was an element of why they were there, what they were doing, and, and kind of how it all went down that, that never really seemed to, to get uncovered. Like, it just kept kind of, it was almost like the whack-a-mole game or the shell game. It was like deflecting and ultimately from from at least the way I read it was that it was trying to pin it on the new captain um Perizzini, is that how you pronounce it right yeah um you know is it basically okay he's the he's the new guy he's the good fall guy you know somebody's head has to roll so let's blame it on him so that uh you know lieutenant colonel painter and general waldhauser uh, can continue to make rank and i mean that, that's the, the the reader's digest version of of what i gathered from it uh, number one, did you find kind of ultimately the same thing? And then also, uh, there's a, a good section of the book that's basically kind of the entire actions on the objective from your subsequent interviews with all of the team members, which I think was really cool. Is that, and for those of you, you know, listening, watching, um, you know, that we were talking about it before we started the cover of the book and the name, it, it may seem like it's kind of a, a grief heavy book. Uh, and it really isn't. Uh, it's much more about a strength and b. There, there is a lot of kind of tactical, hands-on actions at the objective interviews uh, or information driven from interviews from all the other team members in here. That's that's really really good. So it, it's a great mix of that. So don't think that it's uh, you know just a woe is me book because it, it absolutely is not. Um, in having done those interviews, I'd love if you could kind of walk through. Uh, kind of what happened basically and why. Uh, the, the biggest thing that I thought was a, a huge red flag was the local chief of the town or, you know, the Tongo Tongo village of, of him having a, a terrorist number in his phone and that not really being highlighted or investigated any further. That, you know, to me, that, that's a pretty big, big deal. Uh, but yeah. uh, if you could kind of walk through uh, kind of what happened from your interviews, I think that'd be great. Um, and also, I just wanted to say that, you know, originally I thought, okay, so I was going to write a book about Brian. But then when everything happened with the video and every, all of that, 
and then the team started being blamed, I thought, I'm going to just write a book on Niger, on what happened on the ground, like, you know, the books like Lone Survivor or whatever. I thought, I'll, I'll do that for these guys and just write what happened on the ground. Um, by the time I actually got to the final draft of writing this book, I realized because people were familiar with the video, with the phone call and all of that was so different than what had happened in other situations, I had to put all that in there. Um, but also... I had discovered as I'd interviewed the guys just how off the storyline was that we were given by the AFRICOM investigators and the brief that they, that they gave the, to us families. So um, that's kind of how this book ended up being both kind of the start was our story, but then really get into the weeds with what happened on the ground and how that contradicts later. Um, the investigation, but yeah, it started off with us hearing that the team had turned into, they were a bunch of cowboys, they had gone rogue, that's what we were hearing from the media, this was just a rogue team, um, the captain had intentionally misled um, those higher up the chain by a con op that he had written, ironically, there were three con ops, because there were three separate missions, and the only successful mission um, was the first mission, and the con-op for that mission was written by Captain Perizzini. So for me, by the end of our brief, we were still being told, well, you'll understand later, there is no such thing as a civ mill recon mission, which is what he labeled his mission as. Um, the doctrinal definition the only doctrinal definition we have is for a civilian reconnaissance mission, which everybody I spoke to for this book says, no, we do civ mill recon, civilian military reconnaissance mission. You just put that together, and that's what that is. Um, but because he used the term civ mill recon mission, they were saying that that's not in the books, therefore he was misleading us, and they were going on a capture-kill mission and had gone rogue. Um, I don't think anybody who's ever operated on the ground um, or worked with the Green Beret team know, uh, would believe that yeah. um, at all. Uh, the other thing that they wouldn't be very straightforward with us on was the other two con ops, how they were created and um, how they led directly to the men being somewhere they shouldn't have been on a mission that they were not prepared for. Um, what happened, what actually happened was the men received intelligence that they had a two-hour window to make it up to Tillawa, um, north of their base in Wallam, and um, it was going to take them at least four to five hours to get up there, probably longer, and then... Uh, that mission changed again. So they began packing for that mission, knowing full well they weren't going to make the two-hour time window to get up. They had heard that there was a militant in the area, um, and uh, they were looking for him. His name was Don Dushefu. So um, the team had said, this is a bad mission. We won't make it there um, before the intelligence expires anyway, but if you want us to go, we will go. So they agreed to go. Then they get a call back several hours later, right when they're about ready to leave that said 
listen, we know the, the time window has already passed, but we still want you to go up there, but this time we want you to go up there tomorrow morning. Um, so they said, okay, fine. Again, this is a, just ridiculous, but we will go up there. So they leave the following morning. Now they're about 12 hours outside of that two-hour time window, and they were supposed to go down and back. So they go down, they're on their way back, or they go up, they're going north, and they're on their way back home, and they get a call to turn around when they're about an hour outside their base. And they are told they want them to go up to the border of Mali. Um, and the problem is that the area they wanted them to go to has no roads. It has, there, there's nothing up there. It's known as the Wild West. It's where all the militant activity is. It's very unsafe. Um, it's basically, um, they call it a free fire zone because the only people who are up there are either um, like cattle herders or, you know, um, just you know, farmers, essentially. Um, I don't think there's, there might be one or two huts. That's about it. There's really nothing up there um, because the militant activity is so heavy. And it's such a poor country that nobody has cars, vehicles of any type, um, except the militants who have motorcycles. So when they're up in that region, if they see anybody on a motorcycle, they can shoot them on the spot. If anybody is out at night, they can also shoot them on the spot, whether they're walking or riding a motorcycle. So that's why it's called a free fire zone. So the team just said, no, this is not what we should be doing. Um, they wanted them to go up. They believed there was a campsite up there. And they wanted the team to... Now, here's where it gets confusing, because the team was to go up and exploit the campsite. Later, I would read in the redacted report, at points it would say that they were going to exploit the campsite, at other points it said they were on a capture detain mission. The wording kept changing on what their mission was up there, and this was the con-up that was created back at base by those higher up the chain. It was their con-up that, their mission that, that didn't really make it clear what they were doing. But they were supposed to go up and create a blocking position and then clear the campsite. The problem is they were in trucks. They were in Toyota Hiluxes, which move maybe two to five miles an hour through the desert and get, you know, easily get stuck. And they were, an eight, they were in an eight-truck convoy. Three of those were American vehicles. The rest were um, Nigerian vehicles. And uh, they were supposed to create a northern blocking position along the border of Mali to keep the, men, uh, the militants from fleeing over the Mali border on motorcycles. Um, and... The team said, we can't do that in our trucks. So what we need is we need to um, call in like a, a Helleborn unit. So they ended up calling um, Team Arlet, who was out of Arlet. And they had um, helicopters. They worked with an EFON unit, which is a Special Forces um, Nigerian unit. And they had built-in Kesevac. So everything, they could go in, they could drop, you know, create a, a northern blocking position easily. And so that's when the guy said, okay. My husband's team said, if um, Team Arlick can come, then we can do this. But, you know, realistically on our own, we don't have, we don't have the capabilities to do it um, just ourselves. We don't have any air support. We don't have any Casavac. We don't have anything. 
So this is the only way we are willing to do it. So they all agreed. And the, uh, my husband's team was sent driving while everybody else finished up doing all of their plans. So um, that's when Lieutenant Colonel Painter, Colonel Moses, all the higher ups got involved courting this multi-team um, raid. So then my husband's team is driving and by now they've turned around, they're driving north and it's a 10 to 12 hour drive in the dark. Um, they're using their nods and uh, they have to drive out front because the Nigerians can't navigate using nods. But of course, the grass is over. Um, the grass is just super tall out there. There's all sorts of divots and they have to worry about being high centered or getting the truck stuck. So they were moving maybe two miles an hour. They had to have one of the men, the captain, Captain Perzini, had to get out and walk and direct the vehicles through the night up to the Mali border. So they were way behind schedule. And by the time they got up there, um, they stopped at the spot where they were supposed to be. They, were only have, they would have only had maybe an hour to sleep. Um, they're running low on water, food, everything, because they packed for a one-day mission. And, um, well, the Nigerians were running low. The Americans had brought extra, but they were getting a little low on water. Um, so as they make their way up, um, they begin to hear over the radio, right as they approach their final destination, that Team Arlet is turning around due to weather. So now they're up in this no man's land alone with no air support. Um, and really no quick reaction force either. So they're not happy with it, and now they're not even going to make their time frame. They still have to get up and drive several hours in the morning just to make it to the campsite. Um, it, it didn't make any sense. They asked to return to base, and they were told no and continued to push And, and who was the, the voice or, or who was the... The shot caller that, that said no. The final call, um, yeah, th that was a Lieutenant Colonel Painter. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and he was back in Chad. And still to this day has not taken accountability for that. No, in fact, I didn't see him until seven months after Brian was killed. Uh, he came to my home after his name had been cleared in the investigation to tell me that he... Um, give me condolences and let me know that he would still make the same decision. Really? That's what he told me. How, how, um, how, how did you respond to that? I told him thank you and I left. Really? <laughs> I, I, couldn't, I couldn't process that someone would actually say that to a family member, that I would still make the same decision. Did he... Um did he come across, like when he was talking to you, and especially when he said that, did he say it with an air of like arrogance, or, or was there any humility in his voice? He just, honestly, he seemed like such a nice guy. And I thought, he's either insincere. Or he's fucking crazy. Yeah, and either way, it doesn't bode well for him having men in his charge, if he can't even look realistically at something like this, A, not have the knowledge, like the common sense to not say something like that to a family member, whether he really believes it's true or not, he should never say that to a family member, like, oh, I would still send your son up to die or your husband up to die. And he said that to both me and my father-in-law. <laughs> um, 
It just, yeah, especially since most people at that point had felt so much guilt over what happened, even those who had, you know, for instance, uh, Major Van Sen had been on paternity leave, and he showed up within the first day and was just like, I am so sorry. I wish I could have been there. I would have stopped it. I wouldn't have allowed this. There was a lot of guilt and remorse, and he had none. Yeah. Um, all right, so... He makes the call to still still push forward uh, from that point. Uh, about how long was it before stuff goes bad? So um, they slept about an hour that night. Well, they, they had the Nigerian partner forces um, sleep about an hour that night. They pulled security in 15-minute shifts, so nobody really slept. Then they went up um, to the border, turned around um, after they exploited the campsite, and headed down towards uh, home. But again, because the partner forces were out of food and water, they had to stop off in a village called Tongo Tongo. So it was still several hours. I mean, they got up, Perzini had to walk again, leading the vehicles in the morning up to the border. So that took another five or six hours. Then finally the sun's up and they exploit the campsite. As they drive down, it's only, you know, they can move quicker with the sun up. So. Um, they finally get down, it's maybe another five hours, and they're back down at Tongo Tongo. So I'd say another 10 hours total. And um, they're finally <coughs> able to pick up some speed. But they stop for water. And um, while they're there, about, I want to say, gosh, there were a lot. A lot of village elders approached them and want to have a, um, a meeting, a KLE. And so they have this meeting, but initially the um, village chief gets in Mike Perzini's face and is yelling at him, you know, you were here before and you left us and, you know, you don't care about us type of an attitude. And, you know, I was arrested <coughs> and questioned. And, and then he changes and eventually becomes friendly and then they're getting along and Mike just goes, okay, well, everybody's eaten. It's time for us to go. Oh, wait, wait, wait runs back, brings a kid out, and has, uh, you know, the, the medic, my husband, come out and um, inspect him. He had scoliosis, and, you know, Brian just tells him, you know, do this and that, you know, exercise him, his back muscles, whatever. And so then the kid leaves, and they're going to leave again, and no, 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 stay for lunch. So he's delaying them, and Mike's like, we're not staying for lunch. We're leaving now. So they get everybody loaded up. And within a few yards outside of the village, shots begin to ring out. Um, they had been <coughs> informed when they came in country that there would only be, if somebody came, it would be, you know, they might be approached by one or two guys, pop off a few shots at them, and then fly back out into the desert. So they're thinking, okay, we've got a couple crazy guys who are trying to get lucky, make a couple shots at the Americans. Um, there had been a lot of um, ambushes recently in the area, but they had never ambushed Americans. So that just wasn't expected, you know. Um, so as they're driving, and here's what's interesting, is one big th discrepancy between what we were told and everyone was told. I mean, we all saw that video across the news if you were following the story of all the vehicles in a line leaving and then the front American truck stopping 
And we're all going, why would they stop in the kill zone? You know, well, that's because, you know, the bad leader, Mike Perzini, got out and did a bold flanking maneuver um, because he's just a cowboy and wants to fight. Well, as I began talking to the guys, I found out that what actually happened, they were leaving. There were only a few shots, which means there's really no reason for them to stop. Um, But there were actually partner force vehicles in the lead, and they began to panic, and they backed up. One of them slammed into the American vehicle, the first American vehicle, and stopped the entire convoy. The other one tried to go around them and clip the the same American vehicle and basically boxed it in so it couldn't move. There was a tree on the right-hand side um, on the passenger side door, so they couldn't even, you know, they could barely get out of the uh, passenger side door, so everyone was having to get out that way. So by that point, they were trapped in the kill zone by their partner force vehicles. And all the convoy just came to a halt. And at the same time, they still thought, okay, we've just got a couple guys popping off shots and now we're stopped, so they're excited. So Perzini grabbed a couple of the um, partner forces and says, listen, we're going to run around, we're going to do a joint, a, a bold flanking maneuver, and then everyone else will get the truck sorted out while we're gone. So he runs out, he figures he's going to put a couple guys down, no big deal, they'll collect the intel and head back home. He runs over there, and when he gets there, he, sh- he takes a couple guys out, and what he notices is for every two guys he takes out, a couple more pop back up. And then he moves around a little further, and he realizes there's a whole bunch of guys flooding into this area, and they're moving up around and trying to outflank us on the road. And by the time he ran back, I mean, it was full-scale war on the road, and they were about to be outmaneuvered and um, just trapped if because it was just a bottleneck. So he came back and just said, we need to get everybody together. And essentially his bold flanking maneuver actually saved them because they might have stayed there longer, not realizing they were being outmaneuvered. Um, There was roughly 50 insurgents, right? That's what we were told. After going through that, we were told it started with there were 50. Then it was there were 80. Um, And same with, you know, but then they're saying, well, we killed about 30 guys and... You know how that works with the military. They, they tend to underplay, downplay the numbers. So after looking at everything, I'm guessing we killed closer to probably 50 to 80 guys. They carry their dead out, which means we probably had closer to 100, 150 attackers. Easy. Yeah, um, yeah and I saw numbers up upwards to 200. So I'm not entirely sure. And some of them in are certain they saw guys who were part of um, the village, who they'd seen in the village, coming out and also fighting. So um, it it was just, yeah, it it was a mess. So So, um, at at that point, then basically they get together and then they're pinned down and that's when everything goes wrong. Uh, The rest of the group uh, was able to to make it out to a certain extent. can you walk us through kind of that, that final part? So, um, yeah, so their interpreter left, and that became an issue. They spent too much time trying to get the partner forces into the vehicles. And um, they did eventually get everybody in their vehicles and move them out. But um, they did two 300-meter bounds, and um, to get out of the area, but managed to lose one vehicle in the process, and that was my husband's vehicle. 
um, later through uh, an anonymous source I have, um, that I found out there was a 53-minute video that several people had seen from the head cam. And what he told me was that they, Brian, Brian's truck had actually been moved into a blocking position to, um, in order to, um, so they could provide fire to allow the other trucks to get out. And that's why they stopped. They, they weren't hit. They weren't, you know, there was, that's why they were walking beside their vehicle. They had purposely moved their vehicle into a blocking position and were providing cover fire so that the other team members could get out and then they were going to hopefully get out. Yeah. Um, and they didn't. Hmm. So then um, it was just chaos. At the next position, they had a little bit of a relief, um, but that's probably because all the full force was on my husband's vehicle for a little bit. And so um, <coughs> as after they took out Brian and, and Jeremiah and Dustin, um, the other vehicles, again, uh, not the other vehicles, the enemy began to circle around back um, and attack full force on the remaining vehicles. Um, the majority of the Nigerians at that point, originally there were 40 Nigerian um, partner forces. By then, I think there were only maybe nine left um, alongside our guys. And um, but that's you know that's pretty typical. They're 17 years old, scared, never been in a firefight. Yeah, they're there um, for the paycheck, not you know. Yeah. Well, how did Le David get separated? And that honestly was a huge. I think the guys still aren't sure, and it it's. I think it's really hard for them, but. All they can figure out is there were the two trucks, and they each had their drivers. So they, I don't. So uh, Jared, David was driving one truck, and Brent was the driver of the other truck. And when they said to go, everybody jumped in their trucks. David jumped in to drive his truck, and the Nigerian partner force um, leader, Lieutenant Bubakar, he jumped in with David, and. They turned around, and they were all supposed to head the same direction. And the next thing they know, they look back, and he's just gone. So they weren't even sure what happened. They don't know why. They don't know if his truck stalled, if, it, if the engine block got shot out. Or at first, they thought he followed, because there was a Nigerian vehicle that had taken off into the desert and gone the opposite direction and had managed to get away from all of the enemy. And so they thought, well, maybe he followed them. Yeah. Maybe that's what happened. So to this day, they're, they're still not really sure yeah. how it happened or what happened. Yeah. Um, so a a after the, the aftermath of this, essentially, they, they make it back and then um, kind of fast-forwarding into the investigation. Um, is there Was there an official position that you were presented with in terms of the the results of the investigation of, of how it was uh, closed? Yeah, I mean, essentially it was the team had misled us with the first CONOP, and that's why they were so, you know, that's why they weren't given everything they needed for the mission. Mm -hmm. um, if we'd known that they were on a killer capture mission the first time to Tillowa, then we would have, you know, 
given them more assets, which is ridiculous, because if they thought they were on a civ mail recon mission to Tilawa, why would they send them to the border on a capture detain mission and not give them more assets? Yeah, I mean, to me, either way, if, if they're outside the wire, you know, and out in that area, irrespective of whether it's a capture kill mission, a capture interrogate mission, a, a reconnaissance, I mean, to me, the the objective is pretty irrelevant. You know, the fact is, is, is where you're at is dangerous. The fact that you're moving around there is, is no less dangerous because you're you know, trying to accomplish, you know, whatever it means. So to me, not having the assets uh, and, and their reasoning behind it is, is total bullshit from my perspective operationally. Yeah. Uh, secondly, uh, Painter, um, his, his, you know, I would have done it anyway doesn't make sense specifically because of that either, is that if, you f if you're telling me you were misled, why would you do it again then? Right. You know, like, how do you not see your, your blatant contradicting yourself that way by saying, yeah, I'd do it again? Like, well, if, if you thought that they misled you and bullshitted you, then why would you go through it again? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. Well, and they put together this chart, which I thought was hilarious, in the... Um in the final redacted report, and on it, it has you know contributing and mitigated. Um, what was it? Not contributing and I forget what the other word was, but basically were things that contributed to the attack or to the loss of life, and things that were attenuated, so not contributing or whatever. So um, the contributing factor was that Mike Perzini got out and did a bold flanking maneuver. That was one of the biggest contributing factors to loss of life. And yet an attenuated factor was them being ordered to go to the border by um, Lieutenant Colonel Painter, yeah. which is just insane. No, it's, it's absurd. I mean, it's, you're picking apart tactics where at that point you're under fire. You know, that, that's not the time to to dissect what they do or what they don't do. You know, I mean, those are, are split-second, life-changing decisions that, that you do to the best of your ability. I mean, no, no, in no other circumstance are, are team members blamed for the calls they make while under fire. You yeah. Know? I mean, plain and simple. So, I mean, that's bullshit in and of itself. But, I mean, to me, it, it's frustrating for me to, to read the lack of accountability and just the, and I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it in the SEAL teams. I've seen it in special operations community. Uh, irrespective of branch, I've seen it uh, in conventional forces. And it just reminds me a lot of corporate America. You know, and it's really unfortunate that at that level, you know, once guys are 04, 05 and above, it turns into, into a, a career, a, a very politically motivated uh, lot in life and one where they're so far removed from uh, the guys on the ground that they they forget what that's like. Mm -hmm. No different than, you know, Ray Kroc when he was the CEO of McDonald's. Like, he can't relate to the dude, you know, that's washing lettuce, you know, or, or flipping fries or, uh, you know, sitting at the window. Like, he, he doesn't know what their day is like. Uh, you know, and, and these guys, even though they used to do that, it's far enough away to where they, they've forgotten. What pisses me off the most about all of it, though, is, is just that, that inability to say, yeah, I fucked that up. Yeah. You know, none of those guys, you never hear them say that. You know, whether you're the president all the way down to a lieutenant colonel that, you know, made, a, made the wrong fucking decision, um, that just cannot 
for the life of him say, that's my fault. You know, I take responsibility for that. That's on me. I made the wrong call, and I'm sorry. Like, why is that impossible for these guys to, to say? I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I don't either. I mean, and as I say throughout it, like, we didn't care about punishments. The families didn't want punishments. We wanted the truth. We wanted to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Yeah. You know, that's it. It wasn't we need accountability and we need people's, you know, jobs. And, yeah. and no, like this is war. This happens. Yeah. People die. That's part of it. He yeah. signed up like we knew what we were getting into. Fine. This happens. Am I happy about it? No, but. Yeah. And I think, you know, to me, the unfortunate part is, is it, it honestly, it reminds me of, of children. You know, it's that. I, I know you ate the Oreos, right? Mm-hmm. You've got the dust on your face. There's yeah. none left. Nobody else lives in the house. I didn't eat them. Yep. Nope, I didn't eat them. Like, Jesus, would you just say that, yeah, I ate them and I'm sorry? Like, why, why can't you just do that, you know? Yeah. And, and that's what this is. Like, it's, it's such a childish finger-pointing, like, well, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. You know, it's just, I think, unfortunately, it's, it stems from the, the peer review evals and, and and the, the bucking for promotion and trying to, to make rank and having, you know, unblemished careers and... and I would know, love the, it if their peer evals came from those they actually it should. led. Yeah, I mean, it should. It, it absolutely should, especially at that level. I mean, guys that are in positions of, of tactical leadership and authority, which I use that term loosely, um, should be evaluated by the men that they're quote-unquote leading. No two ways about it. Um, was, was there ever anything that came out of the Tongo Tongo chief having the, the contact? I mean, obviously, he, no. he he delayed the guys. He gave them the heads up and set them up. I mean, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure that out. Yeah. Um, nothing, nothing came of that. No, and I think for the guys, it was really frustrating. I know for me, um, it was hard. You know, I, I tell that whole scene about, I think it was that final scene of them on the ground literally being hunted everyone goes oh the alamo position and you kind of go okay what does that mean but to think of the fact that they were literally hunted through the woods for an hour by these guys and came like came within like seconds of being discovered and killed all of them and that then they come back and they have to hear that a it's their fault and b that the chief had nothing to do with it, even when they finally come out and he's sitting on that um, Nigerian, you know, partner force vehicle and directs fire on them. I mean, there are so many things that just left me. I mean, it was so harrowing to hear the guys say, like, we, we were so scared to come out and we finally come out and we drag out our wounded and we lay them in this position. And we see him on top of a partner force vehicle, and he points at us, and it just opened up all over again. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witness accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. It wasn't just a big, like, whoops. To, just... Yeah, to me, it's uh, it's infuriating, you know, honestly. And again, I've, I've seen it 
and other elements of, uh, of the military, and it, and it drives me crazy. Um, I, I applaud you for holding them to account by writing this book and interviewing the, the other team members and, uh, and getting the, the true story out there, because had you not done that, it, it would have been brushed under the rug the same way that a lot of things are, unfortunately. Uh, so I thank you for, for doing that. I know a lot of work went into that, not just from putting the time in, but I can only imagine emotionally there had to be a lot of points in this that were very difficult for you to, to sift through and write and, and edit and reading the same things over and over and talking to the guys and, and rehashing it you know, for a couple of years is, is something that uh, takes a toll, I have no doubt. Uh, so thank you for doing it. Um, do you keep in touch with the, uh, some of the team members? I know yeah. I, I loved the, uh, the part where you guys are all hanging out and they, they start toasting the boys. And, and uh, you know, it, it just, I've been in that situation a number of times, and uh, it's a pretty special moment. Do you, do you keep in touch with them? Or? Yeah, we have a constant WhatsApp thread. Oh, nice. So, yeah, I have to remind them when I'm on there. I'm like, <laughs> hey, just so you know, there's still a woman here. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're great. They're a lot of fun. In fact, I'm flying back east um, tomorrow to I'll see them. I'm really excited. Oh, it's cool. been a while. So um, Before this came out, did you send them copies and say, hey, read this and tell me what you think? Or Yeah, we discussed it a lot. They, they knew... Um, to a certain extent, what was going in it. Um, I harassed them constantly, you know, because I didn't want anything to be off. Yeah. So um, it was really important that it was factually as accurate. And also that when someone like you, anybody who's been in the military, reads that section on, on Niger, on the, on the battle, on the ambush, they, f- they know that this is what happened, that they're not going, oh, this is so yeah. lame. You know, like when you watch a movie and, and it's yeah. just, you're like, that would never happen. Yeah. So I thought as a woman who's never been in battle and knows nothing about combat riding this, I have to make sure that it's accurate, but also that it's gripping. Yeah. You know, that, that you're enjoying reading that section and you're on the edge of your seat. It's not just oh, yeah. a, I mean, a lame black a, and white. A, a woman who's never been in battle is not at all the impression you get of, of who wrote that. You know, So job, job well done for sure. I mean, it's very, very well done and uh, you know, does a, a, f- a fantastic job at, at painting the picture of not just what happened, um, but but the, the the emotion behind it. You know, the uh, the feeling that, that those guys had, and, and kind of the the emotion and the reality of, of what that situation is like. Very very realistic and very lifelike, and uh, and not not easy to do, even if you've been through that. You know, so that, that's a phenomenal job. Um, what uh, so what now uh, in terms of uh, you know for you what's what's next? I'm figuring that out as I go. I hope I get to write more. I've never written before, so I, and I realized I really love it. So um, I'd love to come up with a new project and write something new. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously, raising two teenage boys yeah. is, is pretty full time, but yeah. um, also I'd love to do maybe some speaking engagements. And I, I've gotten to speak at a few different like the Washington State VFW conference recently, oh, and that was so fun to connect with um, a lot of the veterans and and to see them come up to me and, and thank me because um, they've been in situations like this and it was just brushed under the rug and they've lived with it for, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. And, and that stuff affects you forever. Yeah. And them telling me stories about, you know, what happened to them and, and family members who never knew the truth and... You know, that just, 
that's really, um, it's incredible to have those conversations. It's a huge honor that, yeah. that I would um, have veterans trust me and respect me enough to um, have those conversations with me. It's yeah. just been mind-blowing. It's oh, amazing. Really. That's awesome. Well, uh, like I said, I, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to, to come here. I know, uh, you know, we invi invited you to the car show this morning, and you're like, no, I'm taking advantage of my uh, no-kid time. I, I get that 100%. I, I've certainly been there. Uh, so I, I know that your time is, is precious and tough to, to carve out to, to be able to do something like this, but I can't thank you enough for, A, writing the book, because it is a, a very well-written book and also one that, that needs to be out there, um, you know, and this isn't just for this community or the people that knew these guys. I mean, to me, on a much, much larger scale, the U.S. government and, uh, and the Department of Defense, when things like this happen, uh, that needs to be uh, out there and they need to be held accountable, even if it's just by, uh, you know, socially people reading the book and knowing that that happens, um, you know, and knowing the truth and, and knowing that, uh, that it didn't didn't go down the way that they uh, closed the book in their after action. So, um, you know, that's important, and I'm, I'm really glad that, uh, glad that you did it. So uh, anything that you want to add uh, to, to the conversation? Uh, just you saying that it's surprising how often things like this happen. Yeah. And now that I've written this and I've spoken a few times, I'm shocked by the number of people who come up to me and tell me stories. And yeah. I know I just said that, but it's... There have been so many. It's so common. Yeah. And it's, I think, a root cause why so many guys get out earlier than yeah. they would. They love their job, but they hate what gets done to them, you know, unjustly. Yeah, well, and to me, you know, again, it's it's eerie uh, and frustrating, the, the parallels between big corporate America and the military. It happens all the time in corporate America. People aren't losing their lives that way. You know, they're missing out on promotions or they're getting fired or skipped over for whatever, uh, but in this case, um, you know, it's, it's people's lives on the line, and, and it, shouldn't, it shouldn't be impacted by politics and bureaucracy and, and corporate, you know, bullshit the way that it is, and it's really unfortunate that it is, but uh, yeah. I, I hope that uh, at some point it can get back to being about what it's about, which is, you know, warfighting capability and, and keeping it real black and white that way. I, I don't have a lot of hope, uh, but, uh, but I'm... I'm uh, at least hopeful that uh, that it'll happen. You know, yeah. but, um, thank you again. I, I, it's a great book. Uh, I encourage everybody to pick this up and read it. Uh, and again, it's it is very gripping uh, and not uh, quite what the cover uh, would make you think that it is. It's uh, it's an exciting book uh, and fun to read uh, in ter in terms of you know how accurate it is and, and what what all it brings to the table, the emotion that it uh, that it elicits and. and uh, you know, it's it's really neat to see it that that picture being painted so well. So I, I appreciate you doing it. I'd like to take a quick second uh, to shout out and thank our sponsor for today's podcast, Origin Labs and Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel is a great product. Uh, he's got a ton of products actually within the Jocko Fuel line. Uh, the guests and I enjoy them on the show. And outside, I take a lot of the supplements. Uh, I've got some of the Origin Lab jeans, uh, boots, geese. And uh, it's just an all-around American industry. Uh, they do a fantastic job really re-revolutionizing American industry from start to finish. It's all American-made, uh, all American-sourced. Everything start to finish is made right there in-house. And they really do a phenomenal job creating the products and fulfilling the whole ball of wax. 
They've been a huge supporter of the Mic Drop podcast for a while now. And I really can't thank Jocko Fuel and Origin Labs enough for the job that they do for us. And so thank you to you guys. I'd also like to talk about uh, my brand of dog food that just came out. There's uh, food, treats, uh, a line of supplements. The supplements are hip and joint, digestive, skin and coat. Uh, the treats, there's salmon bites, beef bites, turkey bites, uh, salmon skins. And then the food, we've got a, uh, a chicken and sweet potato formula as well as a salmon and herring meal formula. All of these products I, I've come out with uh, in the last six months after years of, of trying to find uh, kind of the right blend and, and be uncompromising in the product quality of what I want uh, and was uh, fortunate enough to work with a manufacturer that made everything exactly how I wanted it, uh, tested it out and got it dialed into exactly how I want it. And now we've brought it to market and, uh, and it's available to you guys. So MikeRitlandCo.com, it's the fueled by team dog line of, of food treats and supplements. I encourage you to either check it out or choke yourself. To you, the, the listener slash viewer, thank you. Hope you like the new studio. Uh, without your support, we wouldn't be able to bring uh, Michelle and guests like her uh, stories to light on this platform. And I can't thank you enough uh, for tuning in uh, show after show. So we'll be seeing you more uh, here soon. Uh, if you didn't like it, uh, feel free to go choke yourself. And uh, until next time, this is Mike Drop. I'm Nick, the host of the UFO Chronicles podcast, with first-hand witnessed accounts of the strange and unexplained, covering UFOs, cryptids, conspiracies, and the paranormal. Real people, real encounters. So come with us on the journey into the unknown. UFO Chronicles podcast is available to listen to on all apps. I'll see you soon. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.